Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hey everyone, you are in for a treat because today is our first ever special recording from our annual Revitalize event. Revitalize is our biggest event of the year where we gather 200 thought leaders for a weekend of community and conversation around the biggest wellness topics of our time. This year, the insights we learned on the Revitalize main stage were too good not to share, so we're broadcasting and sharing them with you on the Mind Body Green podcast in this new five-week series. Enjoy. Welcome, Mind Body Green family. <laughs> We're all here. Thank you, thank you. I am beyond thrilled to introduce a true icon in the wellness world. And it's not a stretch to say that in many ways, this man created the wellness movement. He's someone I am honored to call a friend and an entrepreneur whom I deeply admire. John Mackey, co-founder and CEO of Whole Foods Market. Let's give him a warm welcome. Come on up, John. Well, I certainly did not create the wellness movement. Oh my God, should leave right now. Um, most people don't think our corporations are very conscious and very loving. And, yeah, they're kind of right about that, I think. But what's it going to take for our corporations, for our companies to flourish in the future? And, basically, humanity is evolving. If you just look, people always are worried because they look at, they look at the world and they see problems. And I always think it's better to look at things in some type of historical context. So we go back just a couple of hundred years ago. I mean, uh, yeah, if you go back just 200 years ago, 94% of the people alive on the planet lived on less than $2 a day, and that's in today's dollars. 85% lived on less than a dollar a day, and the average lifespan was 30. And 90% of the people alive were illiterate. That is just 200 years ago. In the United States, 155 years ago, slavery was still legal in half of the country. 100 years ago, women didn't have the right to vote. 55 years ago, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and so I saw this when I was a little boy. 55 years ago, we had Jim Crow laws. We had legalized segregation just 55 years ago in my life when I was a little boy. Um, there was no environmental consciousness 55 years ago. 30 years ago, the world was still largely organized into half the planet was socialistic or communistic. If you go back 22 years ago, there was nobody had a smartphone. There was no Google. There was no uh, Airbnb. There was no Uber. There was no, nobody had an iPod. Nobody had ever stayed at a, an Airbnb. The world has changed tremendously tremendously in the last 200 years, and it's evolving. I mean, consider the fact that we are more 
connected than we've ever been before. And even though there's this sort of tribalization that's kind of occur- occurring, which humanity is going to have to get past, we are much more inclusive than we've ever been before. So the businesses in the future, because humanity is waking up and becoming more conscious, we are going to have to become more mindful and awake. And there's, there's incredible better understanding of all the consequences for actions that occur now. We understand that we are, that we're one species and any type of division based on ethnicity or gender or any superficial distinction becomes increasingly irrelevant. And that's what's divided humanity throughout most of time. There's a, increasingly a greater commitment to truth. There's a higher developed sense of ethics, a greater sense of right and wrong. There's more love and caring than there ever has been before. There's an increasing rejection of violence. Believe it or not, war is at an all-time low. And there's greater environmental awareness since there was actually practically none 55 years ago. What the world needs now, of course, is love. (laughs) It also needs conscious leadership. Wouldn't we like to have conscious leadership in America, in our, in our, in our president, in our, in our, but not just there, leading our corporations, uh, leading everywhere. We need more consciousness. And because in some ways the political leaders, they're trailing because culturally and spiritually we're advancing and we need the leadership to catch up. We need conscious leadership very, very much. You know, the famous quote by Gandhi says, we must be the change we wish to see in the world, right? I've modified that to say, we must be the love that we wish to see in the world. Because above all else, as we become more conscious, we also become more loving. So when my co-author Raj Sisodi and I wrote Conscious Capitalism, when we did some research on what conscious leaders are like, what we concluded is that these are some of the the virtues that we discovered. Conscious leaders tend to be very purpose-driven. They tend to be more loving and caring. They have a higher degree of emotional intelligence. They're more authentic. They show up in their real selves. Uh, They tend to be service-oriented, so they tend to be more servant leaders. Very high integrity and basically just more spiritually awake. So Daniel Goleman, of course, made emotional intelligence. Um, He kind of popularized it and made people more conscious of it. I'm going to talk a bit about that. I will say that as a leader at Whole Foods, um, increasingly emotional intelligence is a better indicator of success than IQ. I mean, it's kind of like IQ is like the ante in the game. If If you don't have a high degree of cognitive intelligence then you probably won't be a very effective leader. But if you also don't have a high degree of emotional intelligence in a world that's so interdependent and so connected, you're probably not going to be very successful either. And so for us, the way the Goldman would put it, emotional intelligence has those two aspects to it. The first one is that you have to have greater self-awareness. And the fact of the matter is, and probably not in this room, but the average person doesn't have very much self-awareness. They don't, know, they don't have any idea what their purpose is. They don't understand their emotions. They're driven by their emotions, but they don't understand them. They don't understand why they're having them. They have no hope of 
evolving them because they're simply not self-aware enough. And then secondly, it's empathy. You cannot, if, if you can't put yourself in the other person's shoes and really listen and tune in and hear what they're saying, yeah, you don't have a, you're, you're just not that emotionally intelligent. And these are skills that can be developed. It's hard to increase your IQ, but you can definitely increase your EQ. You can work at it. You can become more self-aware. You can do the practices that you're doing this, this, this weekend, right? Meditation, affirmations, visualizations, prayer, yoga, tai chi, retreats, breathing exercises, chanting, uh, and probably lots of other stuff that I'm just sort of too old to know what's the cool stuff that's going on now. I mean, these practices that people are doing are raising your own spiritual vibration. They're raising your own uh, self-awareness. And, of course, they're also going to help you be more empathetic. So, also spiritual intelligence. Increasingly, uh, in, in the kind of conscious leaders we need, we need a much higher degree of spiritual intelligence. And it starts, again, with purpose. Um, I'm always sort of amazed that when people say that life's meaningless. It's like, you've got to be kidding. I mean, like, purpose is, like, everywhere. It's just there. You just tune into it. And a conscious leader is going to have the high sense of purpose, and they're going to be able to communicate it to other people. Um, ethics. I'm always also confused when people say, yeah, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really always can't always tell the difference between right and wrong. Really? It's really not. It's not rocket science. I mean, you know. You know in your heart when something's right, and you know in your heart when something's wrong. And so spiritual intelligence makes that whole ethics question sort of like, duh, everybody knows that you shouldn't do those types of things. Um, and of course, a more spiritual intelligence also reflects much more love, care, and compassion. And then a determination basically to make the world a better place, to express the good, the true, and the beautiful, and the beautiful in the lives that we lead each day. So some of the things conscious leaders end up doing one thing they do is that they are able to see purpose and they create a shared purpose. If you're in an organization like Whole Foods, what kind of holds it together is our sense of mission and purpose, and everybody can align around that. So a conscious leader is able to create and communicate that shared purpose. I mean, Whole Foods, Whole Foods higher purpose is to nourish people in the planet. That's been the, basically the higher purpose for 40 years. And conscious leaders, they're not here to maintain the status quo. Conscious leaders working to make the world a better place. Conscious leaders help inspire people, and they mobilize energy in constructive, productive ways. A conscious leader also helps other people. I mean, they help people to grow. They help people to evolve. They're, in a sense, a conscious leader is always a bit of a coach, always or a mentor, always helping people to go to the next level by challenging them, discerning their unique talents, what their strengths are, helping build confidence in them, and then unleashing their own creativity. Because creativity is, is really, that's, that's the great human gift, is the ability to create, and that's how we will solve all our problems. We'll solve our problems through creativity. And people always come to me with these problems like, hey, John, how are we going to solve this problem? And I said, man, I don't know. 
But we do. We know how to solve them, and we will. Although we'll create new problems that the next generation... <laughs> actually, I always say my generation... I'm a boomer, right? So when people want to blame the boomers, I always say, you have no idea how screwed up the world was when we came here. I mean, when there was Jim Crow laws, and I mean, it was horrible. And, and the world's a lot better than, truthfully, than when I was a kid. And yet, there are all these problems that the younger generation here is going to have to solve. And when you have your children and they grow up and they'll be blaming you for how screwed up the world is, just remember what I said on stage here today. Um, conscious leaders are also going to, are going to create win, win, win solutions. I mean, if you think about the golden rule, right? Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's many different forms or fashions of it. For the 21st century, I submit, create win, win, win strategies is a simple ethic that you can follow at all times that works. And if, if you can't create a win-win, win, go back to the drawing board. You haven't been imaginative enough. You haven't been creative enough. Because once you get that we're all interdependent and you stop trying to win and somebody else is losing, but you're trying to create wins everywhere with everyone you encounter, everything begins to shift. It's a very, very powerful to practice that. Conscious leaders are servants. Once you get to a certain place, you realize you have a purpose, and you're in service to that purpose. And you will only be happy when you're in service. And this was said so well by one of my own heroes, was Albert Schweitzer. Uh, definitely a, a much different generation than any of us, but a definitely a truly one of the, the inspirations for myself personally. He has this great quote, and I'm going to read it. I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I do know the only ones among you who will really be happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. It's in service that we find our greatest happiness. So if you're going to become a conscious leader, at a certain point, you will develop to a certain level. The culture can only take you so high. From that point forward, it's about your own intentionality. It's your own desire and your commitment to go further. So becoming a conscious leader and becoming means that you have to commit yourself to grow and to continue to do it. And we're going to talk about some of the strategies to do that. So I already talked about the importance of self-awareness. Um, Socrates said it well, know thyself. Very few people do, and it's a lifetime's work. I remember when I was like 40 years old, and I'm going to tell you a story later on about my dad being my mentor and myself breaking away from him. But uh, I remember when I got to be 40, and I really, I really wanted to run Whole Foods, and he'd been my mentor. And I said, Dad, I'm 40 years old. I'm ready. And he said, 40? You don't know anything. <laughs> and you know what? He was right. <laughs> I did know some things, because there's a certain wisdom that you get at every stage in life. But he was right in some of the things that I didn't know that I discovered later. So I have a quick question. How many of you feel like you do know? This, this is, you just please just answer the truth. How many people feel like they have already found their purpose in life? Raise your hand. I'm going to tell you how to find your purpose in life. You find your purpose if you'll follow your heart. 
because it will lead you to your purpose. And so I'm going to tell you a, a story. This led how the creation of Whole Foods, and I'll try to make. I won't, I won't try to run, run on too long because I'm conscious of time. But gosh, I was a student at UT University of Texas in Austin studying philosophy and on track to get a degree in philosophy. And I was about I don't know 21 years old. Not at this time, I was about 20, 19 or 20 at this point. And I had this required course I had to take, right? There's required courses if you want to get your degree. And I hated this class. I didn't like the teacher. I didn't like the books. I didn't like anything about it. So this inner debate began to occur in my being, which was, John, if you want to get this degree, you gotta just, you know, just gonna have to buck up and do what's necessary to get this, you know, to get past this course. The other part of me was saying, I don't want to. I don't want to. I'm not interested in this. This is bullshit. I'm not going to do this. And uh, this battle went on for about, I don't know, 10 days. And then one night, I was trying to read the book, and I made a decision to change my life forever. I stood up, and I threw the book on the ground, and said, I'm not going to ever, in my entire life, ever read another book I, I don't want to read. And then the next day, I dropped that course. And from that point onward, I never took another course I didn't want to take, I have 125 hours of electives and no degree. <laughs> and that doesn't even include all the courses I just audited. But I did take control of my own life at that point. My parents were very upset, and uh, that, that, well, but two years after that, <laughs> well, no, almost immediately after that, I moved into this vegetarian co-op. And at that time I moved in, I wasn't a vegetarian. I moved in because I was interested in all things counterculture at that point. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to meet some super cool people in this co-op. I did. I met my girlfriend that I ended up co-founding the Whole Foods Market with. Um, and I became a vegetarian. I also uh, learned how to cook. I became the food buyer for the co-op. I went to work for a small natural food store. And oh my God. I had found the purpose of my life. And uh, I came home one day and I said, Renee, we ought to start our own store. And she said, oh, Mac, oh, man, that's such a cool idea. Let's do it. <laughs> she, Renee was an enthusiast. And uh, yeah, we did. We started it. And uh, 40 years later, here we, here we are. Whole Foods is an $18 billion company. <laughs> um, so anyway, follow your heart. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So I think it's very helpful to envision our life as sort of, it's all about learning and growing. It's about learning and growing. And if you're going to learn and grow, you have to be willing to take chances in life. You have to be willing to make mistakes. Most people are too afraid to follow their hearts because it's going to take you on this path. And it's not always a safe path. It's scary. You're, you're, and you're going to do things wrong, and you're going to make mistakes, and people are going to, your friends and your family are going to try to talk you out of things, and yet that's the path. And hopefully your path will not be too difficult. In terms of growing, without a doubt, I can tell you, I've grown more through relationships than anything else. I'm looking around here, and there's like, it must be 80, 20, or 90, 10 women to men, so... Without a doubt, I've grown more, I've grown more in my marriage than any other thing. My wife has taught me, my wife's 
amazing. I mean, it's like, I mean, I just got so lucky. And uh, she's helped me more than anybody else. She's, she's, she told me that I was a project. <laughs> but, but she was on a strict... She was on instructions from her inner guidance that she had to take this project on, <laughs> even though she thought it was a mistake. And, uh, but we've, we've been together now for just about 30 years, so it's worked out pretty good. So we grow through our relationships. Also, as we're going to grow, you have to keep our hearts open and not contracted, and keep our minds open as well. And then again, we have to practice the virtues of love which I'm going to talk more in detail about. But gratitude, care, compassion, generosity, and forgiveness are all extremely important. I'm a great believer in coaches, too. Not that I have authority issues, but that doesn't mean I don't think coaches are good. As an entre- entrepreneurs all have, always have authority issues because it's like, you know, we, we can do it better. Um, but my mentor was my dad. And so I'm going, to tell you, I'm going to tell you a story about that. So remember all those electives I took? in college, they were like philosophy and anthropology and psychology and literature and history. Yeah, no business classes. So my resume goes like this. Bus boy, dishwasher, boys camp counselor, CEO Whole Foods Market. (laughs) So I didn't know anything when I started the business about business. Renee and I just had enthusiasm and youth and energy and passion. But I would say that if I hadn't had my dad as my mentor, but my dad was a, first he was an accounting professor at Rice University in Houston, and then uh, he ended up getting into hospital management and became a CEO of a public company. And so when we started the business, uh, he took me under his wing, and it was great because I'd I got closer to my father over the next 15 years than I'd ever been when I was growing up. We got super close. And I never made a move without talking to my dad, which was a good thing, because I kept trying to drive the Whole Foods bus off the cliff. (laughs) And my dad would say, Don, don't, you know, slow down, or we're not going to do that. And he just saved me from so many mistakes. Um, I still might have been okay, but Whole Foods' journey would have been... uh, I could have wrecked it, and if I hadn't erected, it, it would have definitely not been as successful. And so, remember that conversation when I said about when I got to be about age 40, uh, my dad told me that story about I didn't know anything, and that was in the context of the fact that Whole Foods had gone public a couple of years before we had this conversation. And my dad was far richer than he ever thought he was ever going to get to be, and he was in his 70s at that point. And he just wanted to slow down. It's like he started saying no to everything. Well, no, I don't think we should do that. No, that's too risky. I don't want to do that. And all I could think about was, I really want to grow Whole Foods Market. I think it's a great opportunity. We could be all over the United States if he'd stop saying no. <laughs> and so what I realized was that, okay, he's in a different place in his life cycle. He's got all this money that he doesn't want to lose. So I pulled him aside and I said, Dad, and we were, Dad my father and I were yelling at each other. We were a public company, and we were yelling at each other at board meetings. It was our, our great relationship was beginning to t- spiral downwards. And so I pulled him aside, and I said, you know, Dad, here's the thing. I want to fire you as my mentor and coach. I'm, I'm 40 years old now. That's where the 40-year-old old thing came from. And he was very hurt, 
and said, I don't know enough. And I said, I, Dad, you're probably right. I probably don't know enough. I'd like to keep you as an advisor, but I want you off the board. And I want you to go sell half of your stock tomorrow. Sell half your stock. You'll, you'll never have to worry about money ever again. And, uh, but keep half the stock. Don't sell half of it because we're going to really grow this company, and that's going to be worth a lot more money down the road. And that's what he did. He sold half his stock, and of course the other half just continued to multiply again and again and again. And then after a year, he was very hurt, we made up after a year, and he said, absolutely, that was the smartest thing you ever did. And I'm telling you this story because you need a coach and mentors, but then there comes a time when you have to leave the coach and mentor behind in your own journey, in your own growth path. Otherwise, and that goes for gurus and teachers and everybody else. There comes a time when you've learned what you can learn from your teacher. And if you stay in that relationship, you may not get to your highest potential. It kind of creates a kind of a codependency type of thing. So I'm urging all of you to think at a certain point that there comes a time when you, to go further, you have to let that go. A good metaphor that I use that's really helped me grow as a human being and as a leader is I consider every person in every situation a potential teacher for me. It's kind of like there's a spiritual exercise I sometimes do, which is kind of fun to do, so you should try this one. Imagine everybody that you encounter is already completely enlightened and awake. And they're all there just to help you wake up. If they're mean or being an asshole, it's like the Buddha whacking you on the head with a stick. Wake up, wake up, wake up. And if they're kind to you, then that's encouraging. And this is very powerful for a couple of reasons. Because when you see everybody that you're interacting with as enlightened, guess how they start to show up as enlightened? You give them permission to be their higher self. And they begin to be that way because they feel safe around you. And the second thing that happens is, is that you really begin to tune into people. And you really begin to see them for who they really do deeply are. Because we do tend to see people through projections. But when you're beginning to see people as enlightened, then you're giving them permission to be enlightened, but they are also reflecting back to you your own inner beauty. And so it's an amazingly powerful exercise. And when I get most, sometimes when I get like super flustered or something like that, I start practicing this exercise. And people, I'll tell you, some people at Whole Foods think, John's acting really weird right now. I don't know what's going on, but I kind of like it. <laughs> One of the best opportunities I know to grow is through crisis. Oh my God, it's so painful. So what's the normal human reaction when we're in crisis? It's to contract, right? Let's go back to a safe place where we can handle it. In reality, we should do the exact opposite. It's when we're under the most stress that we have the greatest opportunity to grow. And I'd say next to relationships, crisis, if you will open to the crisis, open your heart wider, there's an opportunity for breakthrough. Don't contract, open wider. And uh, so I'll just tell you a story. I was thinking about all the crises I've had at Whole Foods um, over the last 40 years, including the flood, which wiped us out in the first year. There were the two failed coups to throw me out as a leader. Um, but uh, I'll save that for when those folks are dead. <laughs> Instead, I'll tell, I'll tell the crisis of just the most recent one, 
which was just a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago, when Whole Foods went under attack by shareholder activists. And uh, they were trying to take over our board and put the company up for sale. And we were vulnerable because competition had increased and our uh, same-store sales had begun to decline after averaging 8% same-sales growth for 35 years. So that made us vulnerable attack. When you're in a public company, you are vulnerable to these type of... If you don't... You know, we had a nice long run, but eventually every company runs into some trouble. And now, today, when you run into trouble, you're at risk. And so we had a shareholder activist, Jana Partners, invested and began to... trying to throw our board out, shareholder resolutions... They definitely wanted to get me out. And they did interesting things, like every time I spoke publicly, like an event like this, there was this woman that would come in, and, and there'd be people picketing. And I had a friend who had been um, sort of gobbled up by the Me Too movement back before we had a name for it. And I disassociated myself from him because of these attacks, because they were attacking me. It's like, I'm not guilty of anything here. But they kept associating me with him, even though I disavowed it. And, of course, opposed any type of harassment or any, any of the accusations that were being made against my friend. Those attacks continued, and they stopped the day Whole Foods Market announced the merger. I never had another harassment from her. And the only conclusion was is that she was in the employ of the, of the shareholder activist to ruin my reputation. So while this whole thing is going on, it's incredibly stressful, right? And I had to remember, it's like, okay, John, breathe, open your heart, open wider. What is the win-win-win strategy? How can we... I didn't want the company to be sold to Albertsons or Kroger. I didn't want to have the culture of Whole Foods dismantled. So Amazon became our solution. And they don't have a grocery business until Whole Foods. So... Uh, and th this was the one company that could help us technologically more than any other ones. And so a big merger between big companies is a little bit like, it's a little bit like a marriage. It really is. And we had, when we met Amazon, it was like love at first sight. <laughs> you know, when you fall in love and you have the conversation, right? Stay up all night and you have the conversation and you found the one. Well, we did that the very first time we met. We just, it was amazing. We had this amazing conversation, all the things we were going to do together. Whole Foods management team went away, went to a restaurant to process it all. And we were looking at each other. And it was like, those guys are so smart. God, they're, they're so incredible. I mean, we can do such amazing things together. And then we looked at each other and said, do you think they liked us too? <laughs> and it turned out they did. Because just um, like four days later, they sent a whole team of people down to Austin and we signed a merger agreement uh, six weeks after the first date. And we were married two months after that. So that was an incredibly stressful period. But again, by opening, uh, opening my heart, I got tuned into what the right path was for Whole Foods. I think this is a good crew that already understands this. But you got to study the timeless wisdom. There's never been an opportunity like we have today because basically all the wisdom in the history of humanity is available to us. It's on your smartphone or it can be on your smartphone just like that for virtually nothing. Well, what do people do? They fill up their mind with junk. It's just junk. 
And just like we fill up our bodies with junk food and we poison ourselves, people poison their minds. When we could be eating the healthiest food in the world, in the history of the planet, we can also be feeding our minds with the wisdom that helps take our spirits to a higher place. So the things you're doing this weekend is part of the way that you develop self-awareness, but uh, very important that you have a practice. I suspect if I asked, hey, how many people here have a practice, raise your hands. Yeah, that's actually less than I thought. You got some work cut up for you. <laughs> Can you build a business based on love? I'm going to put that question to you. And yeah, I mean, that's, I think Whole Foods is a business based on love. And, but I'll tell you, it's not very easy. If you think about the metaphors that are used to, to describe business, the metaphors, we understand the world through metaphors, through our, our mental models. And the ones that business is stuck with and that we're trying to change, like conscious capitalism is trying to change it, the first one is, it's like war. Business is like war. There's competitors out there, and you've got to kill them or they're going to kill you. And so you have marketing war rooms, and you have all of these metaphors that we use to think about business that are similar to war. Yeah, you know, in war, there's not a lot of place for love. There really isn't. Because love is seen as something that you do in peacetime. Later. Right now, we're at war. We don't have time for that. Check it at the door. Second metaphors, sports metaphors, about winning and losing. There's a winner and there's a loser. In all our sporting events, think, win, lose. What I've talked about today and what I think business is, is fundamentally it's win, win, win. Everyone should win or it's not a good deal. Win, win, win or no deal. But we use game metaphors, we use sporting metaphors, and um, again, this obsession with competition. And most of business isn't about competition. Yes, there's a competitive element. It's mostly about people working together with each other to create value for other people. In fact, business is the greatest value creator in the world. It creates far more value for people than all the governments and all the nonprofits put together. That's just simple fact. And the third metaphor that hypnotizes people are Darwinian metaphors. Again, survival of the fittest. Only the paranoid survive. It is a jungle out there. Again, those metaphors structure our consciousness. There's no place for love. And if it's truly, if we're fighting uh, to the death here, if we are going to maybe get wiped out, yeah, we can't, we can't really have love. So love is trapped. It's trapped in the corporate closet. If we're going to release it, we have to change the mental models we use to think about business. Next, we have to eliminate fear. Fear is like the opposite of love. And when people are frightened, the hearts contract. So if we manage through intimidation, or if we try to make people frightened in any way, we short-circuit love. And so we have to eliminate fear from our corporations. I talked about emotional intelligence. If you want to have a more loving organization, promote people who are more loving. It's pretty simple. That's one of the things I'm always evaluating when I'm looking at executive talent and we're trying to promote somebody. If I'm involved in a decision, I'm asking myself, how high is the emotional intelligence here? Are this a, is this a loving, caring person or is this some kind of narcissist who just thinks this is the next rung on the corporate ladder? Those are the exact people that you don't want to promote. 
Uh, something we do at Whole Foods Market that's very important that releases love in our organization tremendously, I'm going to tell you that you should try this if you, if you have organizations. We end all of our meetings with appreciations. Every meeting ends with appreciations. And it's very difficult to maintain an attitude of judgment when people hearts are open and they're appreciating each other. You just, it just sort of evaporates, the, the love that's released for appreciations. And of course, while it feels really good to be appreciated, it is the act of appreciating that opens the heart. So it's very important. At Whole Foods, our appreciations got so out of hand that we'd have an hour meeting and an hour of appreciations. <laughs> so first we limited, okay, you can only appreciate three people. <laughs> and then that cut it down to like 30 minutes. And so now you get one appreciation. So do it wisely, because that's all you're going to get. Okay, I want to talk about the many faces of love. Love is a big word. Love is... I'm not talking about romantic love here, but it's kind of like integrity. There's a lot more to it. And uh, it's important that we practice these different virtues of love pretty much every day to the degree we're possible. And I want to start with gratitude. You want to be happy? Practice gratitude every day. Because when you practice gratitude, you're no longer shrunk down in your consciousness. You open the heart when you practice gratitude. Because... It's so amazing to be alive. Don't you just feel that every day? It's incredible. We're alive. We get to move. We get to touch. We get to sense. We get to feel. We get to connect with other people. We get to love. It's an amazing miracle. And just thinking about that, oh, and it's so beautiful. It's so amazing. It's incredible. And then we have so many gifts that other people give us, the connections, the things. And I find if you practice gratitude each day, your own problems don't seem to matter anymore. They just get put into perspective. So gratitude's very, very powerful. And there are many ways you can do it. I do it in my morning practices, right? You just, I just spend a minute or two uh, doing gratitude. And then sometimes, like if you're driving along, instead of looking at your phone at a stoplight, just think about something you're grateful about. And, of course, it's a good way to do things at meals to practice gratitude. Um, care. You know, it's very hard to continue to be narcissistic in life when you have somebody else to care for. And that could be someone that you're in a significant relationship with. But, of course, the real test is children. <laughs> if we're going to be a good parent... First of all, we fall in love with our children. And if we're going to be good parents, then we care for them. And the act of caring is a great gift of love. And so I'm curious, it's a young crowd here, but how many of you have children? I'm just curious, raise your hand. Oh, oh, that's great. So you know what I'm talking about. But it can be caring for an older parent. It could be service in the world. All type of service is a form of caring. And so this is one to practice every single day. I'm going to talk about compassion now. Uh, so, remember how I was talking about how amazing the world is? And it is. However, the reality is we're all going to die. The Buddha has it right. There's a lot of pain and suffering on this planet. There is. And everybody, think this is very sobering. Everyone that you care about, everyone you love, is going to die. And many of them will die before you do. There's a sense of loss that is in this reality. 
And it's, there's only one appropriate response to the pain and suffering, and that is compassion. That's the only response that we should have. Don't close your heart. Open it. Feel it. And then do something about it. Let that compassion wash over you and give it in service to the world. Generosity. What an amazing quality generosity is. And generosity doesn't mean... It's not sacrifice. It's not some type of self-sacrifice. People get it all wrong. If you're truly generous, it flows out of you, out of a sense of abundance. You have it, you have it to give, and you share it willingly because that's how generosity works. Generosity is incredibly powerful. Don't give till it hurts. Give because you want to. And if it hurts, you've given too much, frankly. It's, generosity is a muscle that you develop over time if you practice it. I've already talked about appreciation, but I will say that is something you should do. It, I like to practice what I learned from the one-minute manager many years ago, which is instead of finding fault with people, catch people doing something right. I spend a lot of my time just walking around appreciating people. And uh, yeah, when the CEO founder appreciates people, they tend to, uh, they like it. So it's a great gift we can give to each other. And the final virtue of love that I want to talk about, and one of the most important, is forgiveness. Forgiveness, if you want peace, you cannot have peace until you've forgiven. And we poison our spirits. We poison our spirits by holding on to petty grievances. Oh my God, it's so wasteful. And you know what? The other person, it's like, it's like we drink the poison that we want to give to somebody else. And forgiveness releases us from that. So doing spiritual exercises forgiveness. Uh, you might have to do something very serious like a, like a holotropic breath work or some deeper some deeper spiritual work to unearth the type of petty grievances we're holding on in our souls. But when we do that, when we can truly forgive, an amazing thing happens. We discover that we ourselves are also forgiven. You can't, in a sense, forgive yourself until you've forgiven everyone else. And as everybody knows, well, not everybody, but many of you know that one of the deep spiritual truths is whatever we give, we receive. When you give forgiveness, you receive forgiveness. When you give love, you receive love. Because we have to give it to ourselves first. When we create it in our consciousness, we're giving it to ourselves before it goes out to others. These are the virtues that we should practice every day. Ultimately, your personal growth is your own choice. The greatest challenge that we'll have in our lives is to manage and lead ourselves. No one is fit to lead anyone else until they can lead themselves. Conscious leadership or leadership in general, that's your greatest opportunity for service. The rewards of service are virtually unlimited. So I'll leave you with this thought. All of our higher purpose in one way that we share is to become more conscious and open our hearts. And as we do these things, our love begins to flow. So become conscious, open your hearts, let the love emerge, and then share that love with each person that we encounter every single day. That's Conscious Leadership. Thank you.